there is a handout with this talk that should make it a bit easier to follow. So the talk is in three parts. First, we will look at a very interesting character, Ilya Mokala, who has a direct connection to the Book of Ivania. One poem on him is preserved in the Book of Ivania. We will then look at poems on his descendants, which are preserved in other manuscripts. In the second section, we will look at poems on a rather mysterious woman, Orla, who, I will suggest, also has a direct connection to the Book of Ivania, although her poems are preserved elsewhere. And in the final section, we will look at the earliest classical modern Irish poems on the Ichala, preserved in a manuscript once thought incorrectly to form part of the Book of Ivania, that's H27, about which we've already heard a bit uh, a few times. The late 14th century manuscript that is the subject of this conference contains only a single classical modern Irish poem addressed to a member of the Ochala family. This despite the fact that the manuscript was compiled under the patronage of Murchithurk Ochala, Bishop of Clonfert and later Archbishop of Chewham. We should, of course, bear in mind a possible loss of material. The bardic poem in question was composed in praise of Murchithurk's grand-uncle, Ilium, who died in 1381. Conveniently for us, in a genealogical tract on the Ocala family elsewhere in the Book of Ivania, we find a potted biography of this Ilium that's handed out to. Ilium, son of Donachamwinach, the youngest of the family, took the kingship of Ivania from Carando in County Roscommon to the River Grainy in County Clare in defiance of his enemies. And he made the noblest Christmas feast ever heard of for the poets and chief poets of Ireland and for all the artistic and mendicant folk of every Irish population. And he distributed food and silver and many treasures such as had never been given before. And he was 35 years in full kingship of Ivania. Now we will return to this Christmas feast shortly. Ilium himself first comes to prominence in the annals in 1340, when he overthrew the puppet king installed in Ivania by Thurloch O'Connachur, king of Connacht. One might have thought that having eliminated the reigning king of Ivania, O'Connachur's man, Ilium would have been in a position to have himself proclaimed leader of the whole Ocala kingdom in 1340. But it appears that it took several more years before he was in a position to do so. There are some contradictory indications in our sources as to the exact year, but I think that around the year 1345, Ilium was finally king of all Ivania. 1351, Ilium held his great Christmas feast for the poets of Ireland, of which more shortly. In 1353, according to the Annals of the Four Masters, he established Kilconnell Franciscan Friary in County Galway, the ruins of which still stand. Hostilities with the King of Connacht had not abated in the years since 1340. In 1356, the Ichala killed Thurloch's son and successor as King of Connacht, apparently in revenge for kidnapping Ilium's wife. The power vacuum at provincial level was swiftly filled by a new O'Connachur king, A, with whom Ilium enjoyed good relations. So for about 20 years after this point, Ilium took an active part in the politics of the province on the side of the O'Connachur and the MacWilliam Burks against that other powerful branch of the Burke family, the Clan Rickards. By 1375, Ilium must have been an elderly man. His father was dead 68 years. It was probably around this time that Ilium's son Wailachlan became de facto king of Ivania, though a formal handover of power did not take place until shortly before Ilium's death in Knockmoy, County Clare, in 1381, presumably at the Cistercian Abbey there. The poem on Ilium found in the Book of Ivania, which uh, Padre Gomachain has already mentioned today, occurs in the middle of a supplementary section of Dean Hanachas material after Dean Hanachas Aden itself. Now, this may seem a curious place to describe a praise poem, and Padre has already commented on this, but as we should see, much of the poem in question is concerned with genealogical and historical lore, and the poem is not entirely out of place in the middle of this miscellaneous mytho-historical material. 
The poem begins by celebrating the union of the Ivania under one man. This political union has put an end to chaos and anarchy, has restored peace and prosperity. The poet, whose name is not given, asks rhetorically, who has united the kingdom and brought forth the fruits of peace? He is distracted briefly by describing the beauty of Ivania before he asks further questions, addressed directly to the Ikhala in a manner which today we would describe as passive-aggressive. He asked the Ikhala who else would be in a position to gain control of the country, who else could provide for warriors and for the indigent in Ivania. The conclusion of this line of question is telling. However much the poet may wish to present the union of the Ivania in a positive light as a fait accompli, resistance persists. And this is handout four. As you do not acknowledge, O battle band of cult, that is the Ikhala, him who is uniting every stronghold, I will not conceal the descendant of Kovtuch, the plain of Brega, who desires the ascent of the provinces, that is, who wishes to become king of Ireland. Okay? And this descendant of Kovtuch and would-be king of Ireland is, of course, Iliam Okala, okay, our man. We can be fairly confident the poem was written around 1345, when Iliam finally became king of all Ivania. He had triumphed over his enemies, but the wounds of the Ocala civil war were still fresh. The poet goes on to describe Iliam Ocala's newly built house before turning to his genealogy, a long, long section of the poem. He traces Iliam's ancestry from Kuladachriach, who supposedly lived in the 4th century. Then the poet lists the privileges enjoyed by the Ocala and their king in particular. It is stated, for example, that Ocala does not have to stand up in the presence of any other man, uh, a reference to the custom of, of standing up before one's superior. The focus of the poem then shifts again to matters martial, with an elaborate account of Iliam's weapons, including the claim that he has his spear from Saturn, and uh, the poem draws to a close with a list of battles fought by Iliam and, a, and an account of the extent of his territory. To the modern reader, much of this poem is rather dull stuff, the piling up of A, son of B, son of C, for example, which makes up a good chunk of the poem, does not make for interesting reading in modern eyes. Metrically, however, the poem is leavened with an extraordinary amount of ornamentation. Bracca, or, or speckling, is the term used to describe additional superfluous rhymes in a quatrain, and an additional layer of metrical ornamentation. About a third of the poem has this additional metrical ornament, making it quite an elaborate poem metrically, and also turning the repetitive nature of some of the material into a positive. The poem, as I have said, is the only one addressed to an Ocala in the Book of Ivania itself. There are, however, poems addressed to members of this family in other manuscripts, and I would like to turn to these now. One of these is a poem composed on the occasion of the great Christmas feast held by Ilium Ocala in 1351, handout five. It is the work of the respected poet Gotra Fionn Othala, and was apparently composed the night before the festivities in question began. As we learn from the annals, as well as from Othala's poem, Ilium Ocala invited all the poets of Ireland, both high status, learned men of letters, and lower class bards and entertainers, to his house for a great feast. This must have been an enormous and costly undertaking. Odala's poem is a beautiful eyewitness account of the extraordinary event, the first of its kind. Odala describes the temporary village constructed around Ocala's house for the occasion, the streets where the poets and entertainers were housed, each according to his craft, praise poets on one street, historians on another, lower class bards on another, and so on. These streets resembled, he tells us, the straight lines of a manuscript page. It's quite a beautiful image. 
The ornamented initial at the beginning of the page, so says Odala, is Ilium's castle, its walls smooth as vellum. Odala comments on the unprecedented nature of this assembly. Never before had any non-poet summoned the poets of Ireland to himself. What makes this event all the more extraordinary is the evidence of poems by Gofrafion Odala and other contemporary poets that the poets of Ireland had fallen upon hard times in the mid-14th century. We have evidence indeed, both from bardic poetry and summaries of synodal legislation, that some elements within the church in the 14th century were waging a concerted campaign against bardic poetry, seeking to secure for the church the wealth the Gaelic aristocracy lavished on practitioners of panegyric verse by stigmatizing, even outlawing, praise poetry. In addition, we also learn from contemporary poems that the literary marketplace of the time was getting rather crowded. The prestigious, rigorously trained bardic poet faced serious competition from untrained, lower-class poets, such as the makers of Auron, poems in, in song meter. As I have argued elsewhere, we should see both this campaign by the church against bardic poets and the increased pressure of a competitive literary market at this time in an economic context. From the 1290s into the 14th century, Ireland, like the rest of Europe, suffered a terrible economic depression caused primarily by changes in climate. The early and mid 14th century was a bleak economic period punctuated by famine and outbreaks of disease, including the Black Death, which, whatever long-term economic benefits it would eventually bring, had a devastating effect in the short and medium term on the economy of Ireland and of Europe generally. In this context, the church and the learned poets who had coexisted with remarkable harmony in the preceding centuries found themselves competing for a much reduced pool of disposable income. Both the church and the bardic poets relied upon the native and indeed the Gaelicized Norman aristocracy for financial support. In times of economic prosperity, as in the 12th or 13th century, when we see the rise of bardic schools, neither church nor poet had cause to quarrel, as the needs of both could be satisfied by prosperous patrons. In times of economic recession, and indeed depression, however, church and poet were bound to come into conflict. The success of lower-class poets and entertainers at this time is also explicable in the same economic context. Indeed, one poet even tells us explicitly that the churlish pretender poets are patronised by cash-strapped patrons who wish thereby to save some money by buying cheaper poetry. The economic crisis abated towards the end of the 14th century, and with it, with, excuse me, with it the conflict between the church and the poet uh, came to a swift end. Um, excuse me, between the church and poet. The late 14th and uh, early 15th century brought a period of greatly increased prosperity throughout Europe, a period of economic growth that saw the production of some of the great manuscripts of the later Middle Ages, including our Book of Ivania. The genius of Elia Mokala, the host of the 1351 feast, lay in exploiting the opportunities presented by the depression of the mid-14th century while it lasted. At a time when the learned poets of Ireland struggled to find patronage, he was alive to the possibility of eliciting praise poetry from an unprecedented number of poets on a single occasion. The investment required would be considerable, but the return would be greater than he could ever have hoped for in prosperous times. As another poet observed two centuries later, when Ireland was in the grip of another economic crisis, poetry in later medieval and early modern Ireland was a product like any other. Its price rose and fell according to the law of supply and demand. In times of recession, demand for poetry would fall, and the price of a poem would fall along with it. 
By holding his great feast of 1351, Elia Mokiala guaranteed, at the cheapest possible price for an event of its kind, that his fame would spread throughout Ireland and endure long after his death, and he thereby established a new benchmark for generosity to men of letters in Ireland. Quite how he managed in a time of general scarcity to pay for such an onerous undertaking is unclear. His ability to provide for retainers and the indigent is praised by the unknown poet whose praise poem is preserved in the Book of Ivania. It may be that the extraordinary territorial expansion of the Ikala at the expense of the Connacht-based Norman families in this period brought them sufficient additional wealth to weather the economic storms of the time better than other families. Ilium was succeeded as King of Ivania, as we saw earlier, by his son Muelachlan. A praise poem to Muelachlan is also extant, in this case in the book of the O'Connor Don, a great early 17th century anthology of poetry. Once again, the poet is unknown. Muelachlan's father had brought the family to new heights of power and influence, and Muelachlan inherited a kingdom on the rise. Muelachlan himself seems to have cast a shorter shadow over the affairs of the province than his remarkable father, but he was nonetheless a figure of some importance. He played a leading role in one of the most momentous events in the political history of later medieval Connacht, the permanent split of the Ichonachur, who traditionally provided the kings of Connacht into two factions, Rua and Daun. The sole extant bardic poem to Muelachlan was composed some time after he became king of Ivania, the exact date is unsure. It is a triumphalist document. Muelachlan is presented as a figure of national importance, the rightful king of Tara, not simply the king of Ivania. The poem begins with a reference to the belief that the stone of Tara would let out a roar under the rightful king. Though many have approached the stone of Tara, so says the poet, few have done so with the confidence of Muelachlan. He has agents collecting tribute throughout Ireland without ever having had to reduce other regions to submission by force. The fertility of the country under his reign is sufficient proof of the righteousness of his claim to lordship. And this is a common conceit in classical modern Irish poetry. The motifs of the reign of the just king in bardic poetry, the idea that his reign produces peace and prosperity, not only among men, but also in the natural world, have been discussed in detail by Damien McManus. I give you the reference there at handout nine. Whale Auckland's poem is bursting with these motifs. But the poet is often able to exploit the conventions of the genre in a beautiful and striking way, the true mark of a talented bardic poet. He describes, for example, the Eden-like fertility of a landscape simultaneously ready for harvest and green with new growth. This is handout 10. There is dark corn in white fields. The bloom of every tree is the color of saffron. The rain comes through the new branches in the evening as through an open tear in a green garment. He describes the music of nature around the river Suck and the low levels of water caused by the warm weather in the following terms, handout 11. Blackbirds sing together around the plain of the river Suck. Their call is sweet sounding by a gentle stream. Because of the shallowness of the water in the calm currents brought about by Ocala, even a woman is allowed to steer a ship out of harbour. My oh my. Um, more than half of the poem is taken up with these images of peace and prosperity in the natural world before the poet turns his attention to the human inhabitants of this uh, paradise-like landscape. They offer Muelachan tribute, obey him unquestioningly. The battles he has won, as well as the prosperity of his reign, ensure a swift response to his summons. Even a mere written summons 
is sufficient to rally the troops. If Mwilachlan's summons is irresistible to his vassals, Mwilachlan himself, the poet informs us, is equally irresistible to women. Again, this is a common conceit in classical modern Irish poetry, and for a detailed study of this idea in Irish literature, I direct you to handout 12. Sticking with our poem to Mwilachlan, the poet describes how he is loved by a woman who has affectionate words for his red cheeks. Once young women have consumed even a little bit of wine, they cannot hide their true feelings from Mwilachlan. Even a queen comes to share a narrow bed with Mwilachlan. For her, no bed is narrow, provided she can share it with the king of Ivania. Incidentally, we know the identity of two of Mwilachlan's queens. The second, Fenula, the powerful Okunahur family, would share his bed not only in life, but also in death, as we learn from a tombstone in, uh, in Nakmoy, that's handout 13. Significantly, there are several mentions in the praise poem of Mwilachlan to Norman hostages, a reminder of the reconquest of territory held by the Normans in this period. There is another poem in the same 17th century manuscript, the Book of O'Connor Don, composed by Taigo Higin, probably the famous 15th century poet, though there were others of the name, which celebrates Anokala for being a true friend in time of need, Margnach Denis Darvaile. It is unclear, however, which Ocala is meant in this poem. The manuscript text is difficult to read, but appears to give his name as Gile Quivnacht. Not only can I find no Ocala of this name, but I can find no other example of the name anywhere. And I, I wonder whether we have a case here of the confusion of the knighted B and the knighted M, not unusual in manuscripts, and whether we should expand the said compendium Acht at the end of that name as Ach rather than Acht giving us something like Ocala Gile Quivnach, a thoughtful fellow. Um, this brings us no closer, however, to identifying precisely which Ocala is meant. This might be another poem on Mwilachlan Ocala, but as we shall see, Taigog or Higin had a long association with the Ocala of Ivania. Mwilachlan died in 1401. He was succeeded by a son, Cunachur, who bore the nickname Anabig, premature, and who reigned for only two years. He has left no trace in the poetic record. His brother Taig, however, who succeeded him as king and reigned for seven years, was the subject of an elegy by Taigo O'Higgin. The poem is a fairly standard bardic elegy. The poet praises the deceased for his generosity over the years of their association. He describes his own intense grief at the loss of his patron and the grief felt throughout Ireland at the passing of a great man. The poet wishes he too had died along with the later Cala king, but he then reveals that two years later he is still alive and well, though time passes slower for him now owing to his grief. After these fairly conventional preliminaries, the poet addresses the dashed hope of the Ichala, the frustrated promise of their dead chief. Taigo Kala could not unite Ireland, according to O'Higgin, because of an incident that happened in the distant past. The three Cullas, one of whom, Cullodachriach, was ancestor of the Ichala, had supposedly killed Fiachasrathene, king of Ireland in the third century. As a result of this action, according to a prophecy made by Fiacha's wizard, Dov Comer, none of the descendants of the Cullas would ever attain the kingship of Ireland. Taigog O'Higgin cast his patron's death as a fulfilment of this prophecy. The Ocala king was taken from this life early so that he might not become king of Ireland, which, O'Higgin implies, he would certainly have done had he been vouchsafed more time on this earth. The poem ends with the promise that Taigo Kella has abandoned his pleasant castle on earth for a still more pleasant castle, heaven. 
The poet explicitly makes a connection between the generosity of the dead Lord to the church in this life and the reward awaiting him in the next. And it should be remembered that we have ample evidence from this period for the patronage of the church, and in particular the continental religious orders by the Ithelma. Thygo Kella's sister, Gráinne, was also addressed by the same poet, Thygo Higin. This poem also relates to the death of a member of the Ocala family. The poem is an, is an epistolary address. It is written as a letter to Gráinne, who was grieving her son, Ruri, who seems to have died as a child. Evidently, it was felt that Gráinne's period of mourning had gone on for too long, and the poet was tasked with urging the distraught mother to return to daily life. He begins the poem, hand at 16, whom can I get to send to Gráinne to check her grief? Will she take my advice? What messenger could get her to believe my words? Gráinne I hear is in chains of woe, and twill be hard to free her. The prison of the Lady of Ivania oppresses me too. The poet's cure for Gráinne's grief is to lecture the poor woman on mortality and obedience to poets. Why should she grieve her parting from her son when all humans are destined to part? This world, after all, is only an illusion. She has no right to resent God for taking back to himself that which was his originally, her son Ruri. O'Higgin reminds her of another Connacht lady who was grief-stricken at the death of her son, Darvail, daughter of the early 11th century king of Connacht, Thaig an Echgil. Like Gráinne, Darvail felt the loss of her son, who died young, keenly. An varna the Chaigs and Chlinche, Darvail nachar Onwinche. Darvail could not bear the gap thus broken in her family. The famous poet Makusha supposedly sent a messenger to Daravoil to bring her consolation. Makusha too waxes lyrical about the transitory nature of life. Though Daravoil did indeed get her son on loan from God, he says, it was never meant that she should possess him permanently. Understandably, Daravoil found these words bitter at first, but supposedly they helped her grief to ebb. The message of the poem is hardly subtle. Whether Gráinne drew any consolation at all from the poem is not recorded. We have another poem on the same Gráinne, again by Thaigo Higin. Its editor described it as an elegy on Thaigo Brian, her husband, but the poet dwells far more on Gráinne than on her husband, and I think that it would be better to describe it as an elegy on Gráinne, albeit an elegy composed some years after her death. As we saw earlier, there's nothing unusual in bardic elegies being written years after the death lamented had taken place. It seems, that, it seems that this poem was written when the poet visited the grave of the couple in Ennis, presumably in the Franciscan friary there. The poet regrets that Grania's remains were not returned to her native Ivania. Though she predeceased her husband by four years, she was interned, uh, interred in Ennis, an O'Brien centre, and eventually joined by her husband on his death. We have thus far looked at poems on three generations of Ichala, Iliam, the great 14th century king, his son Moelachlan, and two of Moelachlan's children, Thaigog and Gráinne. All of the extant poems on the third generation are the work of Thaigog or Higin. The same poet wrote two further poems on a member of the Ochala family, Orla. One is a poem that praises her generosity towards poets, her piety and her child rearing. The other is an elegy on her death, in which the poet describes his own grief at her passing and compares her to Saive, daughter of Kaun Kedrach. There's something of a mystery surrounding this Orla. She is identified in the poems we have on her as the daughter of Murchatach and Edin. She was married, but her husband's name is not given. 
Though we have our father's first name, he is also simply called Ocala by the poet on occasion. The use of the surname on its own normally indicates that the person so entitled is the king, the leader of the family in question. But I can find no Murtithach, who was king of Ivania at a time that would match the dates of our poet, who died in 1448. I wonder whether we might make a connection with the Book of Ivania here. In the genealogical material in the Book of Ivania, helpfully edited by Nolego Murila, we find that Murchithoch O'Calla, Archbishop of Tuam, patron of the manuscript, had children before he became a bishop, including a daughter named Orla. Now, I mentioned that in Bardic poetry, the use of the surname without the first name normally indicates that the person so indicated is king or chief. Bishops, however, are frequently referred to using their surname without a first name in the annals, albeit with the title bishop before the surname on Taspog O'Calla, Bishop O'Calla. There is some slight evidence from Bardic poetry that the surname could be used on its own to refer to someone who was a bishop, but not simultaneously a king or chief of his family. If this was indeed allowed in Bardic poetry, then we may have two poems by Thaigo Hagin on the daughter of Murthach O'Calla, patron of the Book of Ivania, preserved exclusively in a 15th century anthology of the poet's work, Thaigo O'Higgins' work, uh, bound today with the Yellow Book of Lecan. Under Iliam O'Calla, the great lord who held a feast for the poets of Ireland in 1351, the Ichala attained new power and territory, inaugurating a period of expansion and prosperity that lasted well into the 15th century. By the beginning of the 16th century, however, the family had been torn apart by internal feuds and their influence had greatly diminished. We have, as we have seen, a significant number of poems from this golden age of the Ichala. Only one of those we have seen so far is preserved in what we can call an Ocala manuscript, a manuscript commissioned by a member of the family. The rest come down to us in miscellanies compiled for other purposes. Some are found in a collection of the works of the poet, Thaigogo Higin, others in general interest anthologies, a genre that appears to become popular at the end of the 16th century. Though copies of earlier poems on the Ochala continued to be made after the 15th century, the poet record itself, so far as I know, ends with Orla, who I've suggested is Archbishop Murtha Ochala's daughter. The Book of Ivania, as we now know, should properly be called the Book of Odovagain, whether because it contained material by the important historian poet Shoan Odovagain, because Odovagain's scribes had a hand in its production, or simply because, though created under the patronage of Murtha Ochala, this great compendium of historical lore was intended for use by the Odovagain family of hereditary traditional historians. There is a 15th century vellum volume currently housed in the Library of Trinity College that was once claimed to be a fragment of the Book of Ivania, H27, which has been mentioned a few times. Though not in fact a part of the Book of Ivania, it has a great deal of material on the Ichala and contains a significant amount of poetry by Shoan Odovagain, the poet historian I mentioned a moment ago, who died in 1372, including a clutch of poems he composed, presumably as a very young man, on Thaig O'Calla, son of Dovno, who was king of Ivania in 1315-16. to 16. I will conclude today by making a few provisional observations in these poems, the earliest extant poems on the O'Calla family, to my knowledge. Some 21 columns of this manuscript are devoted to Thaig O'Calla, though this is entirely obscured by the Trinity catalogue and has resulted in some of these texts being neglected. Thaig himself has left little mark on our historical records. In the conflict between the king of Connacht, Thaylami O'Connachur, and a rival Ruardi, he took Ruri's part. He is also known to have raided the Normans of Connacht, 
and indeed fell in battle in 1316 against a Norman family. The Norman conquest of Connacht certainly looms large in a poem by O'Dovagain on Paig. In a poem of about 40 quatrains, some material was added later and is difficult to make out, O'Dovagain gives Paig's pedigree, emphasising his nobility. Indeed, on account of his ancestry, so says O'Dovagain, Paig's claim to the High Kingship of Ireland is even better than some of those who have actually held it in the past. The poem is followed in the manuscript by a very interesting section of prose and verse, headed Sean O'Dovagain Dorina and Aladatha, which we might render as it was Sean O'Dovagain who wrote this piece. It begins with a non-rhyming alliterative verse composition of 30 lines, 29 lines of seven syllables ending in a trisyllabic word, and a final line of five syllables ending in a monosyllabic word. The poet opens this poem with a litany of epithets. He begins by dubbing his honorand a prophesied one, Tarngarthig, a king foretold by prophecy. Tarngarthig Treon Togvoltach, there is a powerful conquering prophesied one in great well-renowned Ireland, he who distributes, he who disturbs renowned Ireland, he who spoils flat-plained Meath, he who despoils the well-armed Leinstermen, he who rouses the generous Munstermen, he who slaughters undulating Ulster, and on and on and on. This Taig, descendant of Culladachriach, is presented as the king for whom the stone of Tara has roared. We've met this idea before. The composition ends with a rather gnomic sounding, and far sunrus fightlimsha, pawnig tukfa thaw. This man of whom I speak, he has come before, he will come again, he is now. Uh, this composition is followed by a long passage of bombastic, alliterative prose in which the poet sets out to give, at great length and in absolutely no hurry, the identity of this taig. Incorporated into this prose text is, helpfully, the poem which foretold the coming of taig. It is claimed to be the work of Dove, son of Ocho Echoel. I know of no other reference to this Dove, but his father does appear as a poet in early Irish literature. The poem begins, Taig, a lord over all, who will descend from Caon, every land will be in his power to the displeasure of foreigners. The poet predicts the Taig will drive foreigners from Ireland. No beerle good or stammering speech, foreign babble, will be heard in Ireland again, thanks to this Taig. The bombastic alliterative prose continues after the poem of prophecy. The author of this piece tells us that rather than setting down all the many battles of Taig, he will instead recount in detail a single battle fought by Taig. He goes on to give us an elaborate account of a battle between the Ichala and the Birminghams and Norman family. The text is a good example of the prose style of early modern Irish family chroniclers. We have the usual piling up of alliterative adjectives, a smattering of pseudo-archaic linguistic features. The supposed origin of place names is given on their first mention. Armour, clothing and the arrangement of troops are described in great detail. Rousing speeches are put into the mouth of the protagonist. Indeed, at one case, the protagonist, rather like a Leaving Cert Irish student, decides to quote a shanacle to strengthen his point. Um, most of the text is, is built up to the battle itself. When the Birmingham's poet, an interesting detail, the Birmingham's poet, finally spies the approaching Ocala force, he supposedly utters a very curious little poem describing the approaching Ocala king and his weapons. This is metrically very loose, made up of six-syllable lines ending in a monosyllable, and is divided into couplets rather than the usual quatrain. Very unusual. 
The prose narration then resumes with the battle itself. At its conclusion, the poet, Antuder, our poet, O'Dovagoyne, it's unclear, utters another poem prophesying Pike's future career. This is another alliterative, non-rhyming poem of heptosyllabic lines ending in trisyllables. And it begins with another long litany of dramatic epithets. Pig is a crashing wave that drowns, the leviathan of the depths, a powerful fiery thunderbolt, and so on. There is one point of metrical interest about the poems in this text which I would like to mention. The three poems in praise of Pig are all connected by a common dunad, a metrical echo that indicates the end of a poem or a section of a poem. The poem supposedly uttered by the Birmingham's poet does not show this feature, but all the other poems in this prosometric text end with the same word, a paw. We have then at various stages of this section of the manuscript three poems in praise of Pygocala that appear to be linked to one another by a metrical echo, even though prose discourse, prose narration intervenes between them. We might compare a number of short interlinked poems composed a few decades earlier from Manus of Cunachur, King of Connacht, recently edited by Podrigal Machain, which show this feature too. This prosometric text on Pygo Calla and his battle against the Birminghams is a fascinating piece of early modern Irish panegyric chronicling, as I say, totally neglected uh, owing to the unsatisfactory catalogue entry. I hope to prepare an edition for the published version of this talk and will hopefully have shed more light on it by then. There can hardly be any doubt that we have lost an enormous amount of classical modern Irish poetry on the Ichala. Without even perusing the annals to look for mentions of generous Ichala, for whom no poem is now recorded, they are there, it is difficult to accept that, for example, only Gough of Funadala of all the poets of Ireland thought it proper to write a poem in praise of Eliam O'Calla at Christmas 1351. The poems on the O'Calla that are extant have come down to us because they were fortunate enough to be recorded in manuscripts that for various reasons, as well as sheer good luck, survived the ravages of time and neglect. We have no O'Calla Duanera or poem book, though I personally think uh, manuscripts such as these family poem books must have been kept by the O'Calla family. These manuscripts, these family poem books, were more vulnerable to the vicissitudes of time than the great books of Shanchas or the ever useful books of medicine. They had a limited readership being of interest only to particular families. That we have today any bardic poems on the Yochala, we owe to the value outside of a narrow circle of patronage attached to poems composed in their honour. Some of these poems, like the praise poem on Iliam O'Calla, composed around 1345, proved useful to historians and found a place in a great book of Shanachas. Others were composed by well-regarded poets whose work was studied assiduously in the Middle Ages and found its way into the general interest miscellanies of the 16th and 17th centuries. Thankfully, we still have today a fascinating collection of poems on the Ocala from the later Middle Ages, each a fascinating contemporary document that deserves in-depth study. Thank you very much.